The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone, here from New York City uh, with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, we have entertained in the past a variety of different unusual programs, and certainly in terms of interest and curiosity, uh, sort of uh, off the beat themes seem to be very, very intriguing to our audience. We get wonderful polling numbers from that. And today's topic is one that I think will capture quite a number of casual listeners because we are going to be talking about a topic that I would loosely call space archaeology. And is it is very generally the archaeology of space, but uh, we have a very, very interesting guest today who will actually expound on what we mean by space archaeology. My guest is Dr. Beth O'Leary, who has investigated the material, culture, and history of the early space age, uh, specifically the period of space age fluorescence, if you will, between 1957 and 1972. And she will also uh, present its uh, somewhat uh, controversial political context in the age of the Cold War. Dr. O'Leary's interests include uh, iconic space sites and artifacts, focusing specifically on the lunar landscape. Uh, Dr. O'Leary is Professor Emerita at the Anthropology Department at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, where she taught for 23 years. For the last 14 years, she has been involved with the cultural heritage of outer space and the preservation of the Apollo lunar sites. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Beth O'Leary. Thank you so much for appearing on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. So I think the curiosity that most people have is what is space archaeology and why don't you sort of develop that as a topic specifically and, and how you got into it? Well, it is on the outer limits of archaeology, I think, and um, I got into it because a student asked me in 2000, does federal preservation law apply on the moon? And 
just like that. And just like that. And you know, when you get a good question from a yeah. student, you got to follow up on it. So um, I was fortunate. Myself, a colleague, and the student got a grant from the New Mexico Space Grant Consortium, which is the educational outreach of NASA. And we got a small grant, not enough to go back to the moon, but to start researching this. And we focused mainly on the Apollo 11 lunar landing site um, as the most iconic. Um, there is a lot of stuff on the moon, but we kind of focused on, on that particular site. Um, as that project developed and as I worked with students and other people in this field, we kind of came up with an idea of what space archaeology and heritage is, and it's really the archaeological investigation of exo-atmospheric material culture that is clearly the result of human behavior. So it, uh, in its widest sense, it includes all material culture in aerospace and in the aeronautical realms that relate to the development and support of exo-atmospheric activities. Um, it's part of a much larger assemblage of materials that until a certain point in time and technological development were confined to Earth, but some of which entered the archaeological record somewhere else, i.e. in space or on other celestial bodies. So um, myself and colleagues find this uh, investigation of this kind of material culture um, has the potential to really be worthy of uh, future preservation for future generations. And it includes its scientific, its technical, and its social significance um, in terms of the, the realm of space exploration. Very, very interesting. But, and, and it really is called exo-atmospheric material culture. Is that how we would compartmentalize it if we were... Yeah, to because there's a kind of a deal, you know, when does space, where does space start? Start, know? right, and, and where uh, does, yeah, of Yeah, course. so, you know, 100 kilometers up is kind of the, the Air Force and NASA's definition of space. So um, it is, of course, everything is tied to Earth um, and to human behavior, but uh, it does enter another realm. And, you know, some of it's still in orbit today. Uh, some of it rests on another celestial body, and some of it is going very, very far away. <laughs> And it's, it's, is it pretty safe to say that this card, kind of archaeology did not exist before 1957? Yeah, I don't think it existed before uh, 2000. Now, Bill Rathje did write an interesting article in Discover Magazine about um, what he called exo-archaeology. We, we, uh -huh. decided, we decided we didn't really like that term, um, but uh, he, he talked about what was in orbit around uh, the Earth. And there's a lot. So orbital debris makes up part of the artifacts and the detritus or debris or space right. junk um, that humans have put there. So um, we have no evidence that um, someone else has contacted us or there is material culture from somewhere else. But we certainly have put a lot into space since 1957. So you anticipated my my second question. <laughs> if 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 there is someone else out there, then clearly they too have been uh, con could have at least contributed to the material culture record that is floating out around there. But that's a completely different issue. Completely different issue. I do have a colleague um, that wrote a chapter in uh, the book that I did with Ann Darren at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, uh, William Dolman. 
and he looked at the Roswell crash site. And um, after studying that as an archaeologist and doing some test pits, there is no definitive F, uh, evidence that uh, anybody else has been here. Now that now that, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Roswell? I mean, I've, this is very interesting <laughs> because you turn out to be based in not far from there. No, not far from there at all. And the skip exactly. side, of course, was uh, the, the Sci-Fi Channel paid for some geophysical investigation and some archaeological investigation, yes, um, it, about three or four years ago to look at the particular um, area that is uh, out by Roswell. And um, they did not find any evidence of extraterrestrial material culture. So give me an example of the types of investigations that could be performed and the types of methodologies that would be applied to this sort of archaeology. I think it's very, very fascinating, and it certainly opens up new windows in, uh, in methodologic, uh, methodology and also in theoretical approaches to archaeology. Well, I, I think, um, Dr. Schildenrein, I come from a Schifferian, Benfordian perspective, and... Um, the whole idea is that, you know, archaeology can be done in all places and at all times. So for me, if it uh, happened an hour ago in this material evidence, you can study that. You can study the relationship between the material culture and the behavior. Um, in space, what we started to do when we were looking at the Apollo 11 site is we kept thinking there's some document that NASA has that shows everything. We know what's up there. We know what exactly happened and, and what these two astronauts did for 21 hours. Well, we found out it wasn't that simple. And um, so by looking at um, the records, the photographs, the maps that existed at the time that the site was created, we started to develop um, ideas about the behavior of the astronauts and what they were doing. It wasn't all science, even though they left things like the lunar laser ranging retro reflector, which we still are using, uh, observatories are using here in New Mexico and around the world. But they left symbolic items. They left a patch from Apollo 1 for the astronauts who had tragically perished uh, on the launch pad in Cape Canaveral. Um, the way their footprints are in the in the uh, four and a half acres that they traversed around, mostly Armstrong, um, and the fact that they planted symbolically with a lot of difficulty an American flag. So right. that continues the idea, of course, at the height of the Cold War, that we claimed this, we had won. You know, we had. Uh, we had succeeded scientifically and technologically against the former Soviet Union. And um, so looking at all these aspects of the material culture, the political, the social, the economic, um, it's a way of looking beyond ourselves into another realm. And by the way, it's pretty pristine up there. Um, we haven't anybody go back since 1972, no humans. Um, and space is fairly benign. It doesn't have the erosion, which I'm sure you've dealt with digging in the Middle East and the organic um, decay. Um, it's cold, it's hot, um, there are some micrometeorites, but when you look at recent LRO images of the Apollo sites, they're really in very, very good shape. 
Now, let me ask you this. Obviously, I would think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're also looking at things like the launch sites. Is that true? Yes, because um, I guess my belief is when you start looking at space, you're looking at a cultural landscape. So that if you look at Launch Complex 33 at Cape Canaveral, where the Apollo, most of the Apollo missions took off from, its tide and its significance is really bolstered and made and increased by the fact that it's linked to that tranquility base site on the moon. So um, even things in orbit you know, are, are, are part of a landscape of space. And by the way, they're almost as well preserved, some of them, as if you put them in a museum. Uh, Vanguard 1, which we launched in 1958, um, is a very small grapefruit-sized satellite, and it goes over our heads every two hours. There's even a website where you can track where it is, and NASA predicts it to be in space for another 600 years. It's currently the oldest, object, human object in space. So What about, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, yeah. so, so all of these things are, um, you have to think of in a big perspective. You have to think of, you have to think wide spatially. I think, and on that note, we'll have to take our very first break, and we will be back with Dr. Beth O'Leary and explore some of the frontiers, if you will, of space archaeology after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Join Dr. Linda Iniguez every week for the Shrink Wrap Forum. This show discusses topics that you wouldn't normally hear in today's media. In the forum, virtually no topic is off limits. We invite you to join us and participate or dive into the stream where we value independent thought, talk to those people that are making a difference, and explore ideas considered outside the box. The Shrink Wrap Forum can be heard live every Monday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. 
Now, back to the program. We are discussing space archaeology with uh, Dr. Beth O'Leary, who has made space archaeology one of the foci of her research and is, I could think, safely can say, uh, one of the pioneers in that uh, realm of exploration. And uh, Dr. O'Leary, what, what's really interesting, I think, to and will be to a lot of our listenership, is the archaeology of the moon, the landscapes on the moon, and what you can tell us about that sort of uh, scenario, what it is, and how archaeology can sort of enter into this very, very fuzzy area, which which clearly has no precedent at this point. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the moon has a lot of material culture, and um, it has over 190 metric tons of cultural material. Um, these include uh, crashed unmanned space probes, uh, robotics, uh, landers, uh, descent stages from the Apollo uh, and booster rockets. And um, most of it is um, around the lunar equator. That's where most of the Apollo sites are in the earlier Russian sites. You know, the Soviets were really the first to do anything, to put a person into space, to put a sure. woman in space, and then to land a robotic on the, in, on the moon. So um, there are also um, uh, crash landings uh, and robotics uh, from ESA, from Japan, um, from India, and um, so all of these nations have um, an interest and have a material cultural record on the lunar surface. The Apollo is probably the most exciting and well known. And if you're if you're over fifty, um, you probably remember those grainy images on a little TV at your school uh, where you saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, walk for the first time on the moon. Right, 1969. That's right, and it was the 45th anniversary on Sunday. Right. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so we started out looking at, at Apollo 11, and uh, we found out there are, and I'm not sure this is the complete list, over 106 artifacts on the moon from that site, two men creating it for 21 hours while Michael Collins circled above and, you know, um, 60 million people listened or watched, but um, they brought up, you know, scientific uh, instruments. Um, they also were told, because they were landing and Neil Armstrong had overshot a little bit where they had planned to, to land, and so they were very limited on fuel, and they had no backup plan, essentially, and they were told for eight minutes to jettison anything that wasn't important. Um, they had collected about 48 pounds of lunar rock and regolith. They mm-hmm. wanted to take that back, but things like boots went out and uh, 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 different uh, passive uh, seismic equipment and brackets and armrests just so that they knew they had lightened their load a bit and that they would succeed in taking off from the surface of the moon. They also um, tossed out some prosaic things like the urine collection bags and the defecation <laughs> collection devices. Um, and um, so, um, and you're an archaeologist, you know that we're very interested in garbage or trash. And uh, that, is, that is the prosaic stuff that, that did go out. But, um, you know, they left an, a gold replica of an olive branch, which was a traditional symbol of peace, and a disc 
God knows if anybody could play it now, with statements from Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, as well as the leaders of 73 other countries, not including the Soviet Union, um, on the uh, descent stage that stayed on the moon. So, so that, this, is, this is fascinating information, but I want to get back to one of the points that you made. You said earlier that there are 106 artifacts strewn on the surface. Is that what you said? At the Apollo 11 site, yeah. Uh, that let's, doesn't let's include the features. That. that doesn't include okay. the footprints. Okay, so let's just get back to that for a minute. Now, are we at a point where that documentation is simply an accounting and a written accounting of what the astronauts themselves discarded? Or can, you actu- can we actually see the distribution of those artifacts on the surface uh, of the moon using high-tech st- techniques? I wish we could. The LRO got to about 15 kilometers above the surface, kind of swooped down around the equator, and you can see the larger objects, like the descent stage that's in place there, which is the size of a you know a small Volkswagen, um, but the individual artifacts, no, we can't see that. We, we can, can't get there. No, we. Uh, if there was a mission, the, the LRO was really to map the surface of the moon to look at different um, topographic and and uh, geographical features, uh, not to do archaeology. But I get very excited when I saw in 2009 those first images because you can see them. And they've located missing, um, the Soviets had a Luna project uh, of robotics. And uh, in the Cold War, of course, people weren't telling each other where, where they were. Of and course. so um, those images have found some of the Lunacod, a very primitive kind of iron-clad insect-like uh, robots that uh, the Soviets had put up there. By the way, the Soviets had one mission that crash-landed on the moon, and as it crashed on impact, it sent out thousands of small little flags with the hammer and sickle on it. Really? Yes. So, so can, you, can you hazard a guess? And this is, <laughs> this is a question that I think uh, you know, archaeologists specifically would be interested in. Can we make any assumptions or can we hazard a guess on what the preservation conditions would be for uh, maintaining those artifacts on the surface after these 45 years or so? Well, um, I have asked a lot about the flag. Say, let's just take a look at the Apollo yeah. 11 flag, which sure, they yeah. debated about you know, what, what to do, and they decided to put that American flag on there. They put it very close to where they took off from. So um, the scientists think that the main idea is that it fell over. It was plastic um, and metal. Uh, it's probably bleached out. Uh, the stars and the stripes are not um, evident anymore, but, but the materials should still be preserved given the fact that there's extreme heat and extreme um, cold on the moon's surface. Right. But um, most of that is still there. You know, that lunar laser ranging retroreflector I spoke about earlier is still being used. It's being used here in the Sacramento Mountains to send a laser and, and do various scientific experiments. Right. Um, they they thought it would work for you know two or three years and it's it's still working. Um, is is anybody engaged in actually trying to look at the surface of the moon at this point in time, and have they come up with any uh, information concerning the survival of the artifacts or providing even any insights on the la- the natural landscape of the moon? Well, um, it's interesting. Um, I thought I was the first space archaeologist, but it turns out Alan Bean is. Uh, he was on Apollo 12, 
and Surveyor 3, a robotic that we had sent up, the U.S. had sent up, crash-landed there, and he visited it. He photographed it, he mapped it, he took a sample, and they did studies on the effects that had been up there for about a year and a half, the effects of the lunar environment on those materials. Uh-huh. So uh, even though he wasn't trained in archaeology, um, he certainly did a kind of archaeological study. And when um, did he do that? He did that in 1969. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So okay. that was on Apollo 12, just after uh, Apollo 11. Right. And um, uh, so anyway, that uh, the Surveyor 3 still, still sits there. The tracks, uh, this was before the rover days, um, are still there from that mission. Um, NASA, I worked with NASA in 2011, and they came up with some recommendations to spacefaring entities. And again, they're recommendations of how to preserve and protect um, the value of the U.S. government lunar artifacts. And my big triumph is they call them artifacts and not space junk or debris or objects. <laughs> um, but anyway, they, they went through their files and started to look and say, what do we know that we left up there? Um, and um, so we have uh, inventories of the archaeological assemblage, but nobody has really come back with anything to see what condition it's in. And so we really don't know about that particular situation at all, right? No. Um, I think, you know, I'm willing to go, but I'm not sure that <laughs> they're ready to put an archaeologist back on the moon. I think no, it's going to no, be a long not. time before they, they put humans, any kind of manned mission, back on the moon. It's just yeah. so ex- expensive. You know, you're, you're absolutely right about that, and, and I think it... it it goes back to obviously a much more general question. Basically, most of this work was associated with the space race, and once the space race was over, um, I, I know there uh, there have been obviously NASA's around and has a mission, but it's it doesn't have that luster anymore. Those of us who remember that time frame, it just doesn't have it. Am I right about that? Yeah, Is that your... I think so. And you know, for the students that I teach in their twenties, it, it's. It could be in the Pleistocene. It's so it's so far um, back in the past, but the fact is that these this material culture evidences a particular time and a particular stage of technological development and a particular political climate. Um, I had the good fortune to interview Frank Borman, who lives here in Las Cruces. Uh-huh. And he was on Apollo 9. He didn't land on the moon, but he was an astronaut. And he said to me, he said, it wasn't a mission of exploration. It wasn't uh, advancing technology. It was a battle in the Cold War. Yes. And so he was a military man, as were most of the astronauts. And um, his opinion was we were going to beat the Russians in space. And that's and that he was firmly committed to to thinking that way. I'm sure because I think a lot of people were. Yes, absolutely. At that time. And so the symbolic gestures that went up, like the flags, you know, that I mean, it just follows historic precedent that you know when you come to a new territory, you put the symbol of who you are there. Of course, and we'll be back with this very intriguing discussion with my special guest, Dr. Beth. Uh, O'Leary of New Mexico State University and our ongoing discussion of space archaeology after these words. Stay tuned.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and uh, that's a particularly appropriate topic, the, uh, the, the broad themes of our program, to our present episode, which is about space archaeology. And uh, over the, the break, Dr. O'Leary and I, who are, I would hazard to say, baby boomers, um, we had discussed uh, that the possibility or or the the actual probability that we were thinking at the time that this was just the beginning that uh at some point uh colonization of the moon would not be a far-fetched concept and here we are 45 years later and we're no closer to that really i don't think than we were then but i think at that point we said well you know the earth we did know that the earth's resources were limited and it just seemed like such a very natural step but for whatever reason it didn't happen and uh, uh, we were discussing, well, now that we have made our imprint on the moon and that there is an archaeological record out there and uh, as well as uh, an, archaeolo- or an archaeological record that is simply uh, rotating and orbiting around the universe, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, Dr. O'Leary, about preservation and about how we deal with the artifact record and what that might be like? Well, I think one of the the main advantages of being in space or on the moon is that it's pretty well preserved by its remoteness. You know, on Earth, we always worry about uh, people coming and taking stuff and looting, um, warfare, whatever the political climate is in a particular country and its heritage, but um, nobody has been back there since 1972. 
and so its remoteness has really protected it. When I started this project, um, I naively with the students wrote to NASA and said, hey, what about making the Apollo 11 site a National Historic Landmark? Because it fits all the criteria uh, from the National Historic Preservation Act. And um, I thought somebody had probably already asked that before, but um, the lawyer wrote back, and that's always a dangerous sign, and (laughs) said, um, uh, well, uh, we don't consider ourselves to have jurisdiction on the moon. The the world would... would, um, look at this as a claim of sovereignty on the moon. And the keeper of the National Register said, um, as a matter of policy, we don't, we don't deal with anything that's not in the United States. Um, it still, according to the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, remains the property of the country or state that put it there. So NASA, in effect, the federal agency, still owns that stuff. But they also own filing cabinets and trucks, and I think this these particular um, artifacts and objects are a little bit um, more valuable. So we tried to come up with a way to think about how to preserve this, not just by saying, well, it's remote enough, nobody's going to go back there because it costs so much to get there. Yeah. And um, so we started a group of us. I'll include my colleague uh, Lisa Westwood from California, uh, Wayne Donaldson, who's the head of the advisory council, um, looked at state law and said, can we get the states to buy into acknowledging um, the lunar site, the Apollo 11 site? So both New Mexico and California put the Apollo 11 objects and structures, not the surface, um, on their respective state registers. And on Sunday, the uh, Hawaii legislature um, uh, had a resolution that Hawaii was critical to the Apollo 11 and acted in many ways as a training camp, as an observatory for right. the Apollo missions. So we have three states now that are saying we have a connection to this. And there's, of course, many, many more. I, the, the figures I know are 60,000 people worked to get those three guys up there. So there's a lot of buy-in plus my own opinion is humanity stepped on the moon. It happened to be an American, but I don't think that the minds and the scientists and the physicists and the astronomers had any particular national identity. It, it was humanity that stepped there. And the so why, thing, not, why not make it a World Heritage Site? Of well, sort? and that is actually one of the areas or avenues we've gone down. Unfortunately, it's the country on whose territory the site exists who proposes mm-hmm. it to the World Heritage List. Sure. And um, uh, by, territorial, by treaty agreement, nobody owns the surface of the moon. So we're stuck in this legal gray area. Now, there are ways to manage internationally important sites. The Antarctic Treaty, which is um, seven nations in Antarctica that basically says nobody owns Antarctica, have come up with a protocol and a permitting system to who can go down there and um, permitting uh, excavation or archaeological collection. Um, UNESCO also has um, a, have a treaty that protects um, sites underwater. So I think internationally, if we had a protocol or agreements between spacefaring nations that said, Yes, we consider this our heritage, too. We were a part of it. Australia had a listening post. Great Britain had part of um, the program. Um, we also find this an important site. 
But, you know, nobody planned for this. I mean, 66 is the National Historic Preservation Act. They hadn't landed on the moon yet. Um, sure. And um, so uh, it, it falls into this area of it's American stuff. They own it. Um, but we don't have a framework yet for historic preservation. But I think it but, has to be international. Yeah, it does. But uh, as you indicated earlier, once this uh, kicks into any kind of a higher gear, this is going to be a legal battle that will outlive all of us, I would think. <laughs> well, I've been doing it for 14 years. And, and there you uh, go. I'm still right. plugging away, yeah. And, uh, but it's not that anybody doesn't buy into the significance. You know, right. the arguments are not, oh, no, it's not significant, or it's not an important, it doesn't have outstanding universal value, which is the criteria for the World Heritage Site. Of it's course. just that convention never thought of anything outside of the world. So, um, you know, I have two colleagues in Canada, um, uh, Bob Brooks and William Barclay, and they wrote a, a chapter in the book I did on Mir. Mir was an incredible object that the right. Soviets had put in. Right. Uh, it was the first international space station held together with a lot of duct tape, and uh, it crashed into the uh, ocean. Uh, it was deorbited. Um, simply, they couldn't afford to do anything. But we lost a really important um, artifact. We lost something that evidenced that early period that we were going into space. And who could have thought in '69? that right now, where do you have to buy a, uh, a ride to get to the moon? That's true. And, and, and the other question I think that, that I'm very curious about is uh, certainly in 1969, even with this fierce competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union as to uh, who was going to get there first, I'm sure nobody envisioned that within 20-some-odd years there would be no more Soviet Union. And um, that all of a sudden became another issue. Are the Russians or are any of uh, the people or, or government agencies that were around at that time, have they expressed any interest in getting involved in some sort of a, a heritage effort or preservation effort? Um, is- well, we do. We have had contact with one colleague um, named Popovkin, if I'm saying that right, um, who is with the Russian Federal Space Agency. And he wrote a very interesting article um, about the fact that he thinks that those sites that the Russians put there, the former USSR, are, are very important and that we should protect the relics and preserve them for humanity, is what he said in his press statement. Uh-huh. So we reached out to him and said, you know, uh, we agree. You know, it, it shouldn't just be an American effort. I mean, it's not just American things that are up there. Um, And then the other thing is, if you look at the cultural landscape approach, every culture has a relationship to the moon. I mean, the calendars here in Chaco Canyon, the the people in the Yukon I work with, they have stories and narratives about the moon and what happened there and their um, uh, planting regimes and their observatories um, all reference the moon. And I think by rights, they have um, responsibilities and rights to the moon also. I would think, if this is not too far-fetched, if, if, if we just project a little bit going mm-hmm. forward, I think uh, what's happening now 
is in, certainly in, in the area of space exploration is that now we're looking at this whole wave of commercial flights to the moon and commercial flights to outer space that very, very wealthy people are involved in. I think that's what, that's what we're seeing right now. It wouldn't be too far-fetched, I don't think, to get one of these very wealthy philanthropic types to actually sponsor an archaeological mission to the moon, would it? Well, if you know somebody, I can call up after the phone call. <laughs> right. No, but that's what I'm thinking. That's how it's going to get done. It's yeah. not going to get well, done any other way. Well, we have a spaceport here in New Mexico um, that Richard Branson is, is supposed to be um, a okay, there you go. from. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, to take an archaeologist along for the ride would be, would be fabulous. Harrison Schmidt was a geologist trained in geology here from New Mexico, and uh, he went up and, and did scientific work on... Um, uh, the Apollo 17 mission. So, uh, yeah, it's about time for an archaeologist to go up. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation, actually, because uh, if, if we do want to look at a five- to ten-year window, this is what's mm-hmm. going to be characterizing space, space travel. And uh, I would think that if someone like yourself could very legitimately petition for that kind of participata- participation and possibly get some funding. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we have this technology that LRO, the um, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, takes digital images that are just fantastic. They're just not quite the resolution an archaeologist would need. But think of all the work that's been done um, all over the world with remote sensing techniques. Of course. So we have a chance to look at stuff now remotely and, uh, and then decide. Again, you know, you can't preserve everything. When the Apollo 11... Um, Ascent stage took off, it had a blanket around the engine of this stuff called Capton. It looks like gold foil, and it was made to shatter. So there are millions of tiny pieces of Capton over the surface of this uh, lunar landing site. Um, is every single piece you know, significant and important? We should preserve it. Um, right. we, don't, we don't unearth. You know, we sample and we decide... Um, we have a hierarchy of, of what, is, what is very significant and how do we preserve it in the best way. A lot of it, of course, is by avoidance. Of course. And then of, the other thing, of course, that we have here is that uh, if we want to draw an analogy to, from between space archaeology and historic archaeology, I'm assuming that the records that we have from recordation and from simple documentation by NASA and the astronaut is impeccable, that there's a tremendous record that we could use as sort of a baseline for trying to understand what we would eventually find up there. I, I think that's true. Unfortunately, when programs um, are let go or, or, or end, you know, the, ast- the engineers get sent home, and they may take their drawings with them. Um, right. some, of the, some of the things that you would think, oh, we have everything. We have all the information we need. We have every document, a picture, is not true. Yeah. Um, they were looking recently for a gong, which is a little trowel and a shovel that they took samples of the regolith for, they could not find any of the engineered drawings. So they went to the uh, museum in Kansas, and there was one there. It was a prototype that they had taken up to the moon, and they did photogrammetric measurements on it and reconstructed it. So the material culture turns out to be important, even though we think we have everything recorded in a document or a photo or a map. And we will 
return with our final segment on this very special program on space archaeology right after these words. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back with our special guest, Dr. Beth O'Leary, and the discussion is on space archaeology, and we have talked about the emergence of uh, archaeology and uh, the follow-up to the space exploration programs that have not been as extensive as many of us thought, certainly back in those heady days of the late 1960s and early 1970s when when this was a, a very major topic um, but you had mentioned Dr. O'Leary about about a bill or a political movement to uh, reignite shall we say uh, efforts into uh, preservation and archaeology in space mm-hmm. well I was really thrilled when NASA asked me to be part of a group to look at their recommendations again their recommendations for spacefaring entities but it does say since you know 2000 when I started this that NASA is interested in preserving the value of these artifacts. Um, uh, last year, on July 8th, there was a House bill introduced um, by uh, two uh, representatives, 2617. It's called the Apollo Lunar Legacy Act, which um, proposed to put um, national parks uh, on the moon. Um, this ends up in, to be a pretty dicey political um, idea because, again, the Outer Space Treaty says that no one owns the surface of the moon. Right. But I think it was an interest by the um, Science and Space Technology Committee to say, 
we want to raise consciousness about something we're going to have to deal with in the future. And, of course, um, we would like to get preservation ideas and frameworks happening now rather than when they're in imminent danger. And, and we've lost so much on the earth without a framework and uh, without sanctions that um, I think the time is ripe to say, okay, if this is evidence of the space age, the earliest stages of humankind leaving the earth, then we need some way to think about how to preserve it. Um, I think it has to be multilateral. You know, those... Um, Nations that now have a space program that didn't in the 60s, like China, like EU, like India, um, all places that have an interest in space, and even non-spacefaring nations that um, assisted or were involved. And a lot of these countries now have um, space uh, agencies because they put up satellites. We're all very dependent on space. Um, You know, I'm uh, talking to you, well, I'm not on a cell phone, but... You know, all this technology that involves space is something that developed out of our initial exploration of space. So perhaps a, a national park is not the idea because, again, people say, well, what about us? We, we were involved in the space program. It's humanity that landed there. Um, it's not just Americans. Or we could have competing national parks, one Russian, one uh, American. That doesn't seem to be the answer. Agreements. We have agreements about where to put our satellites. We have agreements. We have a whole field now called space law. Um, let's bring it into the archaeological realm because the no. laws we have here right now don't quite cover it. Yeah, and I, I think we could certainly say that, uh, certainly in terms of historical perspective, there we can already start to see that there are several stages in uh, the history of space exploration, one of which is clearly closed, and we're getting into new areas in that domain. So it's, it's a very legitimate way of looking at that in sort of a, a processual and chronological sequence. Yeah, and we have, you know, the Google X Prize, um, which if it doesn't happen next year or the year after, I think people will go back to the moon. Um, so we have threats to right. the existing... Uh, assemblages and sites up there. And uh, working with some of the NASA scientists, I realized that the type of landing vehicle they use um, has an effect on the site. If the motor is rigged in the way that uh, blows dust, you could take away all the tracks in, right. in of seconds. Course. So, um, and those are, I mean, I think those footprints, the iconic ones, are like Laetoli from 3.6 million years ago. You know, Absolutely. Uh, so, so those ideas, you know, we need to work with scientists. And there are scientific facts and information that still needs to be learned about the moon. Um, so what, what, what kind of work are you doing right now? Well, I'm working um, with my colleagues, uh, a group of us from Canada, Australia, and the U.S., and uh, talking with ICOMAS, the International Council on Monuments and Sites, and uh, putting together a scientific committee that will study this. How do we work um, internationally? And if I thought it was slow working in the last 12 years with NASA and the U.S. government, it's very slow <laughs> working <laughs> otherwise. But, um, again, I think people are interested. And um, 
I know kids are still fascinated with space. Um, and when you listen recently, you know, the China uh, Jade Rabbit, um, you know, the little voice that came on and said, I'm lost, you know, I'm going to go mm-hmm. to sleep now. Um, you know, those artifacts are part of their national identity. So they're not just simply scientific experiments. They also are part of the heritage of a particular culture. And I think that will, that will increase in the future. Um, and, and I'm a believer that, that in the future we will go back to the moon robotically first and then certainly with humans. And your own research? My own research continues. Um, I'm going to be publishing a book with Pete Capilotti um, for SETI. It's uh, with Springer Press called Archaeology and Heritage of the Human Movement into Space. And it's a group of the people I refer to. We came together in Hawaii last year at the Society for American Archaeology and put together a collection of chapters on various fields, anywhere from uh, orbital debris to looking at the heat shields on the Apollo um, to looking at the question of preservation. And that type of research, I assume, is moving forward. I mean, we're, uh, the methodologies that we have applied in many cases to terrestrial archaeology, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. and high-resolution imagery, I assume that does have a correlate up there as well. Absolutely, yeah. And um, it's, amazing, um, it's amazing to sit here on Earth and get images um, here from University of Arizona that the LRO is taking over the moon. And evidence that we were there, um, that we left things there that evidence our behavior on the moon. So there's evidence of anthropogenic impacts on the moon. Absolutely. It's not a cultural vacuum anymore. You know, after the First World War, we fought with the Russians to get German scientists and rockets. And... um, and once we got those, their descendants launched our first uh, uh, people into orbit and into space. And the future for this kind of work looks like, if, if it's certainly not going to be catapulted up in, <laughs> in, in, in the next few years, at least there is an impetus to keep this going. Absolutely, and I, I appreciate your idea of getting someone in the commercial realm to say, hey, why don't we send an archaeologist to... And hopefully on that note, uh, there is a future going forward in archaeological exploration of space and uh, not of the alien kind, but of the human kind. And on that note, I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Beth O'Leary, for participating in the program. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And we will be addressing you all next week at the same time. Stay tuned and stay aware. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.